1: Welcome to Invest Talk. above-average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have, as long as they're financial. 888-99-CHARTER is our number, 888-992-4278. Hi, Steve
2: and Justin. This is Kevin calling from Southern California. I have a question about bonds. If I were, were holding uh, some longer-term bonds, whether they be treasuries or corporate bonds, and when interest rates start going back down, how do you decide whether or not to, assuming that the bond value increases, how do you decide when to sell the bond? Like, how much would it need to increase versus holding on to the bond to maturity and just collecting the coupon? Yeah, i just trying to figure out when interest rates start falling, if it's uh, better to, to sell the bond and. Use that towards something else, or, or keep keep a hold on to it. Look forward to hearing your advice on the show. Thank you, as
1: always. Okay, that's a good question. Um, First of all, you probably have to ask yourself, well, why did you buy the bond? Did you buy it for the the yield that it pays? You know, four, five, six, seven, whatever it pays. Is that why you bought it, or did you buy it with a thought that it's going to appreciate because interest rates will come back down eventually. Well, the Fed will lower rates eventually. Therefore, I'll have capital gains in the value of the bonds. So if you're, if you, if you're telling me that you bought it because you're looking for the capital gains for the bonds and you want to sell it, um, you know, at their best price, and that's a, that's a much more difficult question to answer because who knows how low the bonds will go. Uh, part of our main focus point today is talking about where the interest rates are going to go by the Fed, and they feel that the interest rates are going to start rolling over downward by the end of the year. This is from Morningstar, this article. I think the Fed will start lowering them by the end of the year because inflation will be under much more control. Now, how the flow will they get? They are predicting that it'll be in the, what, about the 3% range? Okay, and the inflation rate will be less than the target rate of 2% by the Fed. I'm not know if I'm, I don't know if I'm that optimistic. But you would base that on where you think interest rates are going to go. What is their maximum fall? Are they, they're not likely to go back to zero. That's not likely. But will they go to 3%? That's very possible at some point they will easily. They can easily go there. Okay, and that may be when you would sell your bonds. But it's a harder question. It's much more difficult. You can use a chart of the bond price. And when it starts to flatten out, if interest rates start to go down, when it starts to flatten out, then maybe take your profits. You know, as the price goes up in value, as interest rates go down in value. All right, interest rates go down. Good question, though.
3: Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART.
2: Hi, how are you doing? My name is Mike. I'm from Ohio. I've been listening for uh, some time. I appreciate everything you guys do. First off, thank you for the program. I had just maybe an oversimplified question here, but I have heard it said that the Fed raises rates only so that they can lower rates and vice versa. So they raise rates to lower them, and then they lower rates to raise them, etc. It's all a balancing act. It's all meant to drive uh, that monetary policy, you know, surrounding inflation uh, controls and all of that. And I've also heard it stated that uh, the reason that inflation has gotten so out of control is because the Fed also artificially, depressed or held the interest rates at at a very low or zero rate for for so long. And so I guess my question boils down to this. If the Fed raising rates is what they've done to to kind of rein in inflation, and that seems to be working based on the lowering prices, and they are now thinking about backing off of uh, doing further rate hikes, am I wrong to think that it would be a good idea to just hold them where they're at, and not pivot to immediately cutting them. I mean, what, why would they raise them only to stop raising them just to, to cut them? What am I missing here? Thanks.
1: The, the, the thing that you're missing, but in a sense, you are correct. The Fed raises rates only to lower them later. What you're missing is is what are the reasons they're doing it. The reasons they raise rates is to slow down the economy and the reason why they want to slow the, down the economy is they think that that would reduce inflation. Well, why would it reduce inflation? Because everybody get there's a lot of millions of people out of work, don't have money to buy things and all of a sudden corporate America can't raise their prices anymore because they're trying to get sales and to do so they they got to kind of either keep the price of their things at where they are or lower them. So in a sense the Fed raises rates And lowers rates because they want to. But there's always that underlying reason, and that is they're trying to control inflation. So they've been raising rates to slow the economy because when the economy gets hot, usually inflation gets out of control. Well, But that's not the only reason inflation gets out of control because the economy gets hot. Inflation also gets out of control because of government overspending or printing too much money. The more money they print, the less value it has. Think about this. If you have a million dollars and things cost a million dollars and that's what you live by, then next year you have two million dollars. Does that make the first million that you had worth less money? In other words, does inflation take it? What if you had 10 million? What if you could print all the money you wanted and you said, gee, I think I'm gonna print a hundred million dollars, you know, and you started with one. Wouldn't that make the money worth less? Because the cost of goods to make the things you buy, they don't go up that fast. They might go up fast because they think, well, gee, the money—you know—I'm going to raise prices because you got plenty of money. I'm going to keep raising prices. That's what inflation does. Okay, so if you print too much money and put it in the system, it makes everything overvalued, raises prices, including the stock market. By the way, makes everything expensive. That's called inflation. It's inflationary to print money. That's what we're dealing with. And the government has printed so much money since COVID alone. They already were printing a bunch of money. Now they printed more. Good question. Thanks for the call, Jason. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now.
4: Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want
5: to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here and, and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things.
4: The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday.
5: Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that hey, these are interesting. These have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool
3: for that.
4: Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com.
3: You're listening to an Encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888-99-CHART, 888-99-CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
1: Paul, San Francisco wants to talk about short selling. Hi, Paul. Yes, I listen to KDOW. I'm up here in the Bay Area, and mm-hmm. one of the analysts on the radio station says that short selling is a good thing to do, but I think it's much more risky than long buying. But uh, does anyone know? Is possible know? Is more money made short selling or a loss? Loss or one or even? It's not even. <laughs> Buying long has been traditionally the way to make money in the market, and it's much more reliable than short selling. For me, short selling is only a hedge. Uh, for everybody else, short selling means you predict whatever you're whatever you're uh, investing in. You're you're selling short in. It's usually stocks. You think it's going to go down in value, and if you sell the stock short, if it does go down in value, you make money on the upside. That's short selling. Usually people buy long, meaning they buy the stock and hope it goes up. It's all buying long, selling short or buying long. Buying long, uh, Paul, uh, has been the traditional way most people make money because the market has an upside bias uh, over 100 years. The bias of the stock market is, is to the upside. So selling short is much riskier than buying long. Plus, when you're buying long, you're betting that the company you buy companies that grow and their sales and grow their profits. That's what you're looking for. And the odds of them going up is much stronger than the odds of a company that you think is going to go down will go down. It's just, it's just so buying long is the best way to do it. Paul, appreciate the call. Good question.
3: Got a question for Steve or Justin? You're the best person to ask it at 888 99 chart. Now's the best time.
2: Hey, Stephen, Justin, John here from Lakeland, Florida. I have a handful of stocks from 2021 that at this point I've lost all optimism for them to to incline back to at least where I bought them. And this is before I discovered the stop loss option. Anyways, my question is that is it better to take a loss and sell the stock before it goes to zero or is it better to allow the stock to go to zero or does it really matter either way? Just trying to figure out the best way to recoup as much of my losses on these stocks as possible. I hope it made some sense here. Look forward to hearing your your insight. Appreciate you guys.
5: Well, this is is pretty simple. This is this is a
2: very common habit
5: of new investors. Is you're down and you just hold, hoping and praying. And and I, I, I say two things: hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy because it's down doesn't mean it has to come back. The the remember this. The majority of public companies that have been public listed on the NYSE, listed on uh, major exchanges, they're gone. The majority of them are gone because their business fails, and doesn't mean you know you're not immune to that. Being, a, being buying companies that fail, that you're wrong about. It's naturally wrong. No one is going to be right 100% of the time. Nobody, even the best investors in the world. So understand that. Is it better to wait for it to go to zero? Absolutely not. And it's worth nothing. At least it's worth something today. And then the sec- so the second part is opportunity costs. You have to be, you have to be, let's say greedy with your capital. Understand that, Your opportunity cost is always, do I own this, continue to own this today? Or do I put it in something else that will likely do better going forward? It's not about what happened in the past. That's what we call a sunk cost. You've lost that. Is this asset still the best use of that capital? Or should you sell it and buy something else? And when you're down that much, it means you're wrong. and You have to admit you're wrong and you move on and you buy something else. So absolutely, you sell it, you move on, as long as you can admit you're wrong and you, you realize that, hey, I, I thought it was this way and I, mean, I thought that their business was going to do better or uh, I thought their innovation was going to hit in a bigger way. Whatever it is, were probably wrong. Or maybe you bought it too expensive and it probably should never been there and maybe we'll never get there again. I think of, um, zoom Zoom's a great example. Zoom and we got caught up in the hype. I, I think of the video like that today, uh, you know, the hype of work from home and everyone's going to be on zoom and people didn't realize that, you know, video conference software is not exactly innovative and there's a lot of them out there and they're all pretty much do the same thing. And zoom peaked at nearly $600 per share and now it's at $66 per share. All those people that bought it, you know, hundreds of dollars per share, they were wrong. They were wrong uh, at the price that they paid. Zoom's still a fine company. Uh, I believe it's profitable. Is it? Yeah, it's profitable. But was it ever worth five, six hundred dollars? No. So sometimes you get caught up in the hype, and that's something common for new investors. Okay,
1: so sell it, and move on. You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you 888 99 Chart, beginning our experience. We're here to answer your questions.
3: You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99 Chart, 888 99 C H A R T, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Let's go talk to Taylor in Minneapolis,
5: and he has a portfolio management question.
2: Hey, Justin. Yeah, I've got a question about just evaluating your own personal portfolio. Um, I know that the Dow is only made up of 30 stocks, and the S&P 500 is made up of the top 500. When comparing my portfolio to the S&P 500 over the last six months, I've only made a measly 2% on my portfolio and uh, the S&P 500 is up 14%. So I'm just curious to know if there's a better way to evaluate my personal portfolio or how you go about doing
6: that. Yeah. Hey, this is Luke here. Uh, that's a great question because I think, you know, one of the things people struggle with is benchmarking their portfolio. And part of that is understanding uh, what makes up those benchmarks. So the S&P 500 is actually not the top 500 companies in, in the U.S. market, but just companies that are selected from the uh, Standards and Poor's Committee. And so that's how they make up that benchmark. So if you take a look at the S&P 7, for example, the seven handful of names this year, uh, it's up like upwards of 20%. But if you take a look at the other 493, it's only up about 3% this year. And that's really indicative of the overall market. So, you know, if you're taking a look about, it's called breath. If you're taking a look of, you know, how you should benchmark your portfolio. If you have a diversified, uh, you know, portfolio of U.S. equities, for example, then you want to find a diversified U.S. index. The Russell 3000 is a great one. It takes Mm -hmm. a look at the top 3000 companies um, and it gives you a more accurate representation, you know, of, of what is happening in the U.S. market.
5: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because at any given time, there's a, what is called style drift and especially in those market cap weighted indices like the S and P 500. And it basically means that the larger names, they have a, a bigger weight. So if, uh, those for right now, the tech industry is the highest weighting within uh, the S and P because they just tend to be valued the highest. And, but that doesn't, isn't always the case, right? There've been periods where, you know, kind of pre 2008, the oil sector, uh, Exxon was the largest holding within the S and P. And so it's, it, it varies. And so does that mean that you're, you you want to benchmark something, uh, where maybe you're way underweight tech and should you be benchmarking towards an index that's overweight tech? Probably not. You want something that's a a, a lot broader, and that's uh, I agree with Luke. You know something like the Russell three thousand. That's why I look at the NYSE, for example. That's twenty five hundred different names. That's going to give you a much better representation. Ideally, you probably want uh, your, you you want to create your own benchmark if you can. Probably with your sector weightings, right? So there's a your your understanding are your energy stocks forming the energy stocks within uh. Within that sector, within the, the market, um, are your industrial stocks outperforming the industrial stocks within, within the market? That's the way I would probably look at it more than uh, the portfolio uh, in aggregate. So uh, it's definitely difficult to benchmark uh, because you want to be comparing apples to apples. And by nature, all portfolios are just a little bit different.
4: This is Invest Talk, made possible by KPP Financial, where they describe their services as independent thinking, shared success. And this philosophy is why KPP Financial can be of great value to investors. KPP principals Steve Peasley and Justin Klein, are committed to unbiased guidance. They don't upsell clients into expensive and questionable investments. Instead, Steve and Justin provide honest opinions and proven strategies, based on the individual's current portfolio and risk tolerance. Working with KPP Financial, you can be assured of consistent dedication toward the goal of helping you achieve financial freedom. You can get things started with a phone call or a simple message through investtalk.com. The InvestTalk Radio and Podcast continues now. The phone lines are open. Call with your questions. 888-99-CHART.
2: Hi, my name's Sam, I'm a new listener. I have a question about whole life insurance policies. I have one of those for all five of my kids and I've got one for myself and my wife. And putting away about 35 to 40% of the savings, my monthly amount of savings, I put about 30 to 40% of that into these very secure, well, at least I think they're secure, policies. And I intend to pay them for the next, you know, 20, 25 years. I'm 32. I've had them since I was uh, 24. And I'm just wondering. I have the option to stop paying them, and then they'll they'll still last. And they've been paid up enough, so there won't be, you know, they won't lapse or anything like that. And I'm just wondering if I should stop paying those and direct that 30% towards something else. Thank you.
1: Well, I would. There's whole life, universal life, term life. Life insurance is supposed to be for life insurance. Insurance companies like to say, well, no, life insurance is an investment. And they use whole life and universal life as proof that's an investment. Is it an investment? Yes. But I don't think it's a very efficient investment. If you need life insurance, buy term life. That's for a certain amount over a certain period of time. I would not put more money into the, 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 the whole life. I would put that money into an account a joint account, me and my wife, or if you're not maxing out your 401k, open up a IRA to get some tax benefits out of that, and then invest that money. You'll find that if you do the math and do it over a long period of time, you'll probably have more money investing on your own than if you would have kept putting it in the whole life universal life. Remember, you gotta pay commissions for those things. They're expensive to maintain and keep, meaning there's high costs. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. eight 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 ninety nine 99 chart 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now.
5: Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com slash today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI Red Teaming is the practice of stress-testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems hacker1 seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development security and IT teams so stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with hacker1's attack resistance platform Learn more at hackerone.com. That's H A C K E R O N E.com.
3: Hackerone.com. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
2: Hey, Steve or Justin. You guys always say that you should never have one stock be more than 5% of your portfolio. When you say 5% of your portfolio, do you mean of just your stock portfolio? Or does that count like your cash and, and uh, retirement account as well? Is it just your stock portfolio that everything to get it that shouldn't be more than 5% of? Thank you. I'll listen on the podcast.
5: I definitely... F- think it's more of your broad uh, investment assets. So if you have an IRA and a 401k, then you can combine those together, for example. I think you put cash separately, and that's kind of its own own
6: bucket uh, for emergencies. Uh, what do you think, Luke? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't know if I would separate cash. I, I consider that a part of my asset base as well. But you know, when you think about the risks that you're taking on with any individual investment, you have to have it in the lens of what well, your overall allocation, right? So, if a client comes to us and wants to to us to to manage their assets, we have to see everything they have, um, mm-hmm. so that you can appropriately diversify, appropriately control for those risks. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I agree. It's more of a more of a broad view.
5: Yeah, because yeah, it's. You know, if you have a small portfolio, that's ten percent of your total assets. You know, if it's twenty percent in one name, you know, overall you're you're broadly diversified because you have uh, you have other assets elsewhere. So, yeah, it's definitely out of your overall uh, asset base.
2: Hey guys, I have a daughter; she's almost one year old, and I'm looking to start saving money for her. And I'm just wondering what the best options that would be. I've heard you guys talk about five twenty nine plans before. I'm just wondering if I go that route. Could just give like a 30-second overview of what that entails. I think I've heard on the program before that you can actually buy a 529 plant from any state. You don't have to actually live in that state. If that's the case, could you just go over uh, one or two options, which ones would be the best state to go with? Thanks. Love what you guys do. Appreciate it.
1: Okay. uh, 529 program is an educational uh, program to put away money for whomever you want to. To use for educational purposes, and it has to be uh, accredited colleges only. It can't be, you know, beauty school or truck driver school. It has to be an accredited college. So uh, the, that's the restriction you have, and there's, you're limited. And each state, or not all states have, but most do, have 529 programs because they are state sponsored. Okay, so if you live in one state, you don't have to, as he said, buy the 529 in that state. You can go buy it in any other state you want to. What's the benefit? And the benefit is it grows tax-free. The 529s grow tax-free. You don't ever have to pay capital gains on anything in there. It's like an IRA. Do you have to take it out? No. You don't, and you can transfer it to another child or an adult or whatever, as the beneficiary. So if one child doesn't want to go and you have a second child and they do, you can transfer it to the second child. Uh, Long time ago, I did a a quick survey of this and I found that one of the better states was Florida. Uh, And I think one of the Midwest states, like Illinois or one of those states, I don't remember. We're also good, but the, you you have to do some research because each state can change the rules in that state. You know, uh, many of the 529s, now some states make restrict you to certain investments. Most of them restrict you to mutual funds, but some states say, well, as the child gets closer to 18, you have to be more conservative. I mean, I, I, that makes no sense to me. You know, why a state should control anything about your investments, I, I don't buy that, but. So I would find the state with the least restrictions and go with that company, restrictions on your investments. And I would go with you know, you know, some speculative indexes or mutual funds, whatever they provide. Good call. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that.
4: This is Talk, made possible by KPP Financial. Where principals and InvestTalk hosts, Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are independent financial advisors. For clients, they are fiduciaries. Steve and Justin have a duty and a commitment to always place the interests of their clients ahead of the firm. This is different from the way many other organizations operate. And one way you can realize the benefit of an association with KPP Financial is to know that KPP practices parallel investing. This means that the personal investment accounts of KPP principals participate with client investments at equal prices and percentages. It's an important difference. You can learn more anytime at investtalk.com or reach out to Steve Peasley and Justin Klein by emailing or calling their Irvine, California office. The Invest Talk radio and podcast continues now. The phone lines are open. Call with questions, 888-99-CHART.
2: Great show, love it, and appreciate all that you do for us. Trying to find out if there's any truth to something that I've heard, and um, I'll try to explain it as an example. If I had 10 shares of Apple for a year, and in a year and a half, I add another share, and let's say now I have 11 shares, are the 10 original shares still long-term gains? I had also heard that once you add to your position, that timing starts over. So just interested in understanding how that works. Appreciate it and thanks again.
5: Very simple. It's called share lots. No, if you buy more shares of a position, doesn't reset your timing of those original shares you purchased. So you can buy one share every week forever, but those original 10 shares that you bought are still long-term because you bought them on that particular date over a year ago. So no, it does not reset your uh, your timing of any other shares that you own. There's different share lots. Now, uh, if you want to sell a position and you want to specify uh, share lots, there's some settings typically within your brokerage uh, account that you can you can change it to first in, first out, or last in, first out. Uh, There's some different rules that can be set depending on your broker. Uh, so check with that. And if you want to be sure, maybe call up your broker and say, hey, I just want to sell these lots uh, so that I make sure that they are long-term or I'm getting rid of the short-term or whatever, uh, whatever your strategy is. So no, it does not reset if you buy more shares.
2: Hi, Steve and Justin. I've got a question for you. This is Craig from uh, the mountains outside Seattle. I am cash flowing a shop on my property that's gonna cost about 150 grand. I've already got about 80 of it cash flowed without having to cash anything out, but I intended to cash out investments uh, for it anyway. So my question is, I've got about 70,000 in RSUs through my work and I've also got about 300 grand in a brokerage account. My thought is to use the RSUs first, since they're already part of my adjusted gross income and parts have already been pulled out for taxes. I just want to know if that's the right approach. It should cover the rest of the build without having to touch my brokerage. So just wondered your thoughts on that and if I'm thinking the right way or if I'm missing something. Thanks so much.
1: Well, I'm not an accountant, but it sounds the best way to me. You want to use those funds that... Probably have already been taxed, and you said the RSUs have already—you've already paid taxes on that, so you don't have to worry about paying more money uh, uh, out of your pocket to cash in the RSU restricted stocks. So um, you know, what the other solution was to be take out of your brokerage account. I'm not. I'm not for that because you probably have capital gains. But again, that's why I say talk to your accountant. Do you have capital gains taxes that you would have to take or continue take losses? If you can take losses, okay, and might be advisable to take some losses to apply to future capital gains. If you don't have losses, then maybe not. And if the restricted stocks, um. You know, what kind of company do you work for? Is it growing? How strong is it? Those kind of questions need to be answered. and It's hard to answer that since I don't know any of those facts. But on the surface, it sounds like the smart thing to do. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it.
3: Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888 888- Ninety
5: nine chart. Now, let's pivot back to the Best Talk Voice Bank. From the number that never closes, it's eight 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 ninety nine chart and this question came in from Florida.
2: I am putting money into my Roth on a weekly basis to maximize my Roth because I can't do it all in one, one drop at uh, the beginning of the year. What's the best way to invest into stocks or ETFs when you can't buy a large block of a stock at a given time, so you're slowly putting into the market on a weekly basis do you just pick stocks that you think are going to do well and dollar cost average over the entire year and then adjust the strategy as needed? Or is it best to just kindly, kind of blindly invest into these ETFs or index funds? Thanks. I look forward to hearing the answer.
5: Either way, you're doing dollar cost averaging, but you are going to pick a strategy that works for you. There's no right answer to what, what strategy is best for everybody, because of risk tolerance levels, expertise, discipline, etc. cetera. Clearly, within, the only way to do better than the market is to not invest in the market, invest in individual positions. But there's risk there, and you have to know what you're doing in order to put the odds in your favor. And that's what we try to do on this show, obviously. If you don't have the time and the expertise and the discipline, then you probably just want to index. Especially if you're a small investor, Right. indexing, the cost of indexing is, is very small because you're talking about a small dollar amount. When you get to six figures plus, then you know the cost of indexing, cost of just having funds in general becomes a lot higher and then suddenly individual stocks and, and bonds might make sense, but you have to still have the, the discipline or the, and the expertise and the time and the data. So it's really about first figuring out that strategy and then dollar cost averaging towards that strategy. Sounds like you're new investor, so maybe just indexing makes sense for now, but over time, maybe that could change.
2: Hi, it's Steve or Justin. My name's Eric, and I've been listening to your show for about a year now, and I've really learned a lot. I thank you for that. And I was wondering if sometime on the program you could talk a little bit about SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. I guess specifically what I'm wondering is how do these compare to like a traditional IPO as far as are they more risky, less risky? And I know you've talked in the past about not investing in an IPO until it's been out for at least six months for the insiders to kind of get out and prices to regulate or whatever. Do you have any kind of general guidelines for companies that become public through the SPAC? Thank you. And I'll listen for your answer.
5: Great question. Now, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. What it does is it raises capital, maybe a few billion dollars, and the idea is to go out and buy another company, buy an actual company. The SPAC doesn't have initially any company in it. It's just a an asset uh, with cash. And then they use that cash to go make an acquisition. And oftentimes, the price of that SPAC will pop dramatically. And this all has to do, it's financial engineering. They're limiting the supply of shares that are out there, right? Because the owners of that SPAC, owners of the shares typically are closely held. So when the supply of shares are very, very low and they go make an acquisition and he wants to buy into that acquisition, they're chasing after a very select few number of shares, and that really explodes the value of that spec. So, you know, if you want to play that that game, that that financial engineering game that a spec does, uh, then that's that that's fine. Um, but it's also very risky. They might make a poor acquisition. They may not keep as many shares held to the best as they had hoped. Uh, there are a lot of risks to it. Uh, But it's definitely not an investment vehicle, it's a speculative vehicle only.
2: Hey guys, this is Peter from Columbus, thanks for the show, I love it. I just had a quick question about options, so I've been trading options for about the last few months, and it's been going well for me. But I was just curious, I understand the concept of it pretty well, but as far as the time to expiration and things like that, and then the, the possibility of profit, does the length of time itself actually impact it? Uh, now I understand that there's you know the expiration and and strikes and all that stuff, but let's say I were to make a call, I were to buy an option for a week or an option for 45 days with the same strike price, would that impact the potential profit that I could make outside of just the time to expiration, or how does that formula kind of work? Hopefully, I can get this answered. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Love the show.
5: Great question, and. The fact that you asked me that question makes me worried that you're actually trading options because you should know this is the basics of options. So when you're buying an option, you likely want to go farther out, meaning you know yes your payoff could be higher or will be higher if you buy a shorter dated option, say a week or a month out, uh, because the time value that you're uh, that you're paying for is very small relative to longer dated options, maybe 2 months. Three months, six months, maybe even a year out, you're paying a much bigger premium for that option because you're buying a lot of time. And the odds are you're going to need that time. Now, you certainly could get a quick payoff and the stock might move rather quickly on you and you're going to get a big return. That's certainly possible. But when you buy more time, it gives you more time for your bet to eventually pay off. If you buy a weak option a uh, month option right where it expires relatively quickly you're up against the clock you're already on the clock for that to play out and if it doesn't you could lose all of your money rather quickly so I always say if you're going to buy options you want to be going further out in the expiration uh, time, scale and if you're selling options whether that's a call or a put you want to be shorter you want to get that time value decay to be happening rather quickly. So it depends on which side of the the ledger you're on, whether you're a buyer option or a seller of options, but that's kind of how they work.
1: Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278.
3: You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments though, 888 99 chart, eight 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 ninety-nine C H A R T, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
2: Hello, Steve and Justin. This is Jay Clark calling from Chicago again. Just had a question about commodities in general. You see the gold mini shares, you see the gold directions, the, the three-time leverage, you know, all type of different types of commodity. Holdings. just wanted you to explain you know the differences between those different type of commodity holdings and what they mean to us as investors I um, hope to hear it on the show thank you
5: all right well commodities can be broken up in a lot of different ways. You have your energy commodities right your oil, coal, natural gas, you have your soft commodities, you're talking about sugar, grain, corn, etc. You also have your precious metal commodities, your gold, your silver, your platinum, etc. So they all have very different use cases, very different properties, and they act very different in their price action in the marketplace. When you have a tough economic environment like right now, you're going to see the energy commodities do much worse and the precious metal commodities do much better. Now, you can invest in ETFs that track particular prices of those different commodities or a basket of commodities. That's one way to gain access. You can also own the individual companies who mine, produce those type of commodities, right? Or you can buy an ETF that owns a lot of the companies and you get broad diversification like a GDX owns a bunch of gold miners or you can invest in ETFs that are leveraged and then that is a speculative vehicle of, to, to help capitalize on the movement of the underlying commodity or the shares of the companies who produce that underlying commodity. So all of them have different risk factors. Uh, I think the, the lowest risk is going to be the actual commodity because it's a direct link. A little bit higher risk would be investing directly in the companies that produce them. There's a little more leverage typically to those prices, right? Where gold miners, for example, typically have a two and a half to three times the overall volatility of gold prices. So if gold prices do well, you're probably going to do much better in individual gold mining names. But you have to pick the right ones as well. So if you don't have the expertise to understand which ones to pick, then you want to buy an overall ETF and you get broad diversification. If you have a very strong conviction, you could buy a leverage ETF to the shares or the underlying gold price or commodity price, whatever you're looking at and use it as a trade. But you wouldn't want to own those and hold them long term. Hope that helps. Hi, Steve or Justin.
2: I love your show and appreciate your advice. I'm curious about what account would be best to trade under. I have a Roth IRA, and individual trading account. Which one would be better for making trades and investments? Thank you.
5: Well, if you're trading a lot and you're creating short-term capital gains, then a tax-deferred account like a Roth IRA would be the best. If you're a buy and holder and you're typically not selling very often, then those type of investments are better in maybe taxable accounts because you're not creating taxable events very often. So, depends on how much you trade. For most traders, a tax-deferred account is best.
2: Hi, I had a 401 k from a previous employer that was automatically rolled over into an IRA. It's just in cash currently. And uh, I'd like to move that over to a Schwab or a TD Ameritrade or something and just get a little experience day trading with that money, if possible. I've been playing with a little of my personal money in Robinhood accounts. I don't play with my 401k at all. I don't touch that at all. I max out the contribution. Is it possible to day trade with money that was formerly in a 401k? And am I going about this the right way to get experience? I'd love to hear your answer on the show. Thank you. Well, there
5: are sometimes rules around day trading in an IRA, especially if they're under $25,000. So typically look into that with what the, uh, the broker's rules are on it. I definitely would move your money away from Robinhood. I don't think anybody should have uh, their money in Robinhood anymore, especially with Schwab, TD, E-Trade, Fidelity, all having commission free trading. So I would try to consolidate your IRA and brokerage account into, to one firm. We use TD Meritrade, but, uh, they're all, uh, pretty good to definitely make sure they're all CIPIC insured and big so definitely go uh uh, with that route uh now day trading 99 out of 100 people who day trade fail so your odds of of failure are very very high uh if you're going to day trade uh, start with paper trading start making you know real live decisions don't look backwards and say well what if i did this say okay i'm going to to say, I'm going to pull the trigger right now. If I did that, my fill would probably be this. Put that down in a spreadsheet and then start paper trading. Okay, I would pro- I would get out here. Put that down. And be honest with yourself as well. Be very, very honest with yourself. And there are actually even uh, paper trading programs out there that you can use. So paper trade first. Find a strategy that you find work, works week after week, and frankly, month after month, I would, date, I would paper trade for six months before you do any type of day trading.
0: Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security.